If you have a Bible, please could you open it to um, Genesis chapter 45. So we're in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and I want to open it to the 45th chapter. We're going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter in a moment or two. But before we get there, it's worth just bringing you up to speed. I know that some of you are here perhaps for the first time today and um, for a little while we've been tracking through the story of Joseph who is um, an extraordinary man who has a really unbelievable journey in his life and it's resonated with many people for a very long time uh, the way that God works in this young man's life. At 17 years of age he's sold by his older brothers into slavery into Egypt and uh, he ends up working as a household servant, where he gets accused of raping the mistress of the house, falsely accused, and then ends up in prison. He's in prison for a number of years until his special gift begins to emerge, which is that he has a kind of prophetic ability to interpret dreams that God speaks through him. And as a result of that, he ends up being pulled from the depths of a prison cell in Egypt all the way up to the highest-ranking prime minister in the land, working under and next to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And years later, as he's administrating the country, there's a, there's, a bit of a, there's a famine that's going on, and he's made preparations for this famine by setting aside grain for years. His older brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery, who were shepherds out in Canaan and a few hundred miles away and across the Red Sea, they travel down to Egypt thinking Joseph is dead. They stand before him thinking he's just the Egyptian prime minister. Remember, his appearance had changed drastically over the 20-plus years, and as he's wearing Egyptian fashions and not speaking the Hebrew language to them, they stand before him, and they begin to make a deal to trade for grain. He thinks that they're spies, or he accuses them of being spies. He sends them back to go and fetch their younger brother, Benjamin, who's his full brother. They share the same mother. They come back. He then accuses them of stealing, and things go from bad to worse. And it all culminates in the second brother, Judah, giving a speech to Joseph, which we read last week, in which he basically expresses a willingness to take Benjamin's place as the thief and be imprisoned instead of him. And in that moment, there is an extraordinary transformation that takes place in Joseph's heart. These brothers of his who sold him into slavery in Egypt, who he'd been thinking about and feeling angry towards for more than two decades, are now in front of him changed men. And they still don't know it's him. And then we begin to read from Genesis chapter 45. This is what happens. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself, before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not 
you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have, and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. I want to ask you at the outset, what do you think is the greatest work that God accomplished in this man's life and what you know of Joseph's story? And you might think that the greatest work was his ability to endure pain and suffering and to endure through all those dark years of feeling abandoned and nevertheless to trust in God and so that God was able to raise him up in the way that he did. And I say certainly that was an extraordinary thing that God accomplished in him. But it was all preparatory for what was to come. So I don't think it was necessarily the greatest thing. Some of you might think, well, no, it was the, it was the, the way that Joseph presents himself as such a gifted man. He's full of the Holy Spirit of God. He's able to interpret dreams. And I recognize the power and importance of the Spirit's work in our life and of this this aspect of being gifted for service, but I still don't think that's the most important thing about him and what God accomplished in him. We know from the New Testament that it's possible to be gifted, but to be absent of the most important things, which is a heart of love. And some of you might think, well, it was his skill and wisdom and leadership and the way in which God put him in a position of power. That's the extraordinary thing about his life. And again, I'd agree with you to, to, to an extent. It certainly is an amazing thing, but God could have used anyone he chose God can raise up and set down each individual to be his instrument in whatever way he pleases. I think the answer to the question, if you ask, well, what is the most amazing thing that God accomplished in this guy's life? It's here. It's in this capacity that Joseph shows on this occasion to forgive, to extend grace and mercy to these brothers of his who were so undeserving. And I think the reason why I draw your attention to this is because it seems to me to highlight an aspect of the scripture's teaching about God's relationship to us and what in particular it is that God values and what he wants to accomplish in you. And I can put it like this, that God is much less interested in what you do with your life than he is in what you are and what you become. Now, in a sense, I know that I'm setting up a bit of a false dichotomy there because what you do is very much an outpouring of who you are. But what I mean to say is this, that God is less interested in the things that you accomplish and attain to, your status or rank or any such thing, or the good works you do for him. He's less interested in those things than he is in the transformation of heart that he wants to see within everyone who is part of his family. The scriptures talk about this as 
the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Or is the replacing of a heart of stone with a heart of flesh? There are all kinds of ways the Bible speaks about this. But I could show you, I could prove this to you from so many passages. But let me just choose a few. You think about that great famous passage where Paul talks about the importance of love. It's often a passage that we hear read on wedding days. But he says there, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he goes on, he says, if I can do all these extraordinary things, but I'm absence of love, I've missed the main thing. So God is less interested in the things you do, the things you accomplish, than he is in the heart and the way in which you're changed on the inside. The same is true when Jesus is teaching us about worship. In the Bible, worship is an action, no doubt about it. And for those who lived in Old Testament times, the actions were very demanding. They had to make certain journeys, travels to Jerusalem. They had to perform sacrifices. They had to do it in a special way. And all of that was part of their worship. And even for us who are living in the kind of New Testament era, as it were, worship does involve action. It involves singing with your heart and with all your passion. It involves assembling with God's people. But the Lord Jesus Christ made this vital distinction when he's talking about worship, when he was talking to the woman at the well, that passage that Jeremy preached from a couple of weeks ago. He said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You see the difference that he makes there. He says, worship, real worship is not going to be so much about the where and the how, even the when, It's going to be about a posture and a state of heart to worship in spirit and in truth. It's true also when he's talking about the life of holiness. I think about those amazing statements in his Sermon on the Mount. When he says things like this, he says, You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And we all agree murder is bad. It's a heinous crime. But then Jesus adds to that. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this is extraordinarily sobering teaching in the Bible. Because whatever facet of Christian living you look at, the things you do, the way you worship, the life of holiness that you're called to, whatever way you look at the Christian life, the New Testament keeps telling us again and again, God is so much less interested in what is the appearances and what is on the surface than he is interested in the heart and what is happening inside of you. He's interested in the transformation that takes place within your heart, out of which flow all kinds of good things. But this is what God is interested in. And when you ask the question, what is it that God especially wants in the heart of his people? What is it that perhaps best captures the spirit of God and shows that he's at work within us? And I think one answer to that is the formation of a heart of grace and the capacity to forgive others. The ability to be lavish in the giving of grace just as you've received grace from God. And the reason why I would put that so high in terms of the way the Bible talks about God's agenda and his priorities for you is a couple of reasons. One is because Jesus teaches us that really this is the evidence that you know him. 
He says on numerous occasions that you can't be forgiven unless you forgive. And what he seems to mean by that is the only way you can really be confident that a person is a Christian in the first place is that they have this ability to give the same grace that they've received from God. That just as you've experienced, you've, you've known what it is to bring the burden of your sin before Christ and to know him taking it off of you and freeing you from any sense of shame or guilt or any sense that you have anything to pay for it. In that way, the, the proof that you know what that feels like is that you're willing to do that for others. A person, I can put that negatively. A person who cannot forgive is doubtful that they are a Christian. And I'd also add this. It's one of the most obvious and transparent ways in which we begin to see Christ-likeness forming within the Christian life. I love to put alongside one another the stories of Jesus dying and of Stephen dying, Stephen the first martyr. You remember how Jesus, when he's on the cross, in Luke's gospel, he, he's hanging on the cross, he's bleeding out his life, and he says to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen, that first Christian martyr, he's being bludgeoned as the stone, he's being stoned in Jerusalem, and the stones are, are, are smashing into his head and crushing his body. And as he's dying, he begs forgiveness from God for the people who are killing him. And to my mind, then, there is no greater proof and evidence of the power of the Spirit at work in an individual's life than when we are able to demonstrate and walk in the capacity of grace and forgiveness. I recognize in addressing this subject that we're all in different places in this room. There's some of you here who are are not really aware that you've been wronged and therefore not conscious that you're carrying any issues with you, that there's anyone to forgive I say to you, well, you probably just haven't lived long enough yet. And there are others of you who, at the other end of the spectrum, are immediately aware, even as I'm speaking, you're immediately aware of those individuals in your life, perhaps one person who's done something so wrong against you, wronged you so terribly, perhaps in the distant past or even recently, that you say it's impossible to forgive. It's impossible. To which I say, it is impossible. You're absolutely right. That's why it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in you. It has to be a supernatural work of God. And therefore, your ability to forgive will only be proof of the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit and the way in which he changes our hearts, as we see in the life of Joseph. Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. People have wronged you many times in your life. And some, some relationships have been fractured, torn, and maybe there's people in your life who you struggle to be around or avoid altogether. And this little irritations, it's like I went on a walk the other day with my kids and ended up with little weeds attached to my shoes, little tiny seeds with hooks that were all over my shoes. And it's like that. You go through life and things attach themselves to you. And it's irritating and annoying and you have to, you know, maybe you give it some attention, but mostly you just live with the issue. Or it's like having creaky joints. You know, it's kind of annoying. None none of you are close to that yet, I assume. But maybe one day, and you think, well, I don't really need to get my joints fixed or changed, but I can just live with this. 
Or it's like burning your toast in the morning. You just scrape it off, don't you, and just butter the stuff. It's like, oh, I'm not going to start again. And it's like, well, I've got these irritations in my life. There are, there are relationships that are fractured, broken, damaged, but ultimately I can live with it. I'll just get on with, just get on with my life. And I want to remind you, friends, of the central importance, the urgency even, that the Scriptures put on this issue of forgiveness. Paul says in Romans 12 that as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I want, therefore, to open this up in the life of Joseph and ask this question, how is it that this man was able to forgive? What is it that takes place on this day that so brings about a healing of the relationship. And I want to show you a few things. And the first is this. That this forgiveness takes place, first of all, in his heart. And I say the same to you, that where forgiveness is necessary, it has to happen, first of all, in your heart. Now, the reason why I stress this is because I think sometimes we get this back to front. We imagine that in order to forgive someone, the first thing that's necessary is we have to, we have to be reconciled to them. And ideally, it should be accompanied with much groveling and repentance on their part. And then maybe I'll consider forgiving them. But what you see happening in Joseph's life here is something almost the exact opposite of that. The forgiveness is beginning earlier. And in fact, I would say it makes sense, doesn't it, logically, that forgiveness is more fundamental than reconciliation. Reconciliation is good and sweet and wonderful. But something more fundamental than reconciliation is the ability to forgive from the heart. It's the first thing that enables reconciliation, if possible, to take place. And doesn't always happen. But the forgiveness must happen. I can prove this to you. Ask yourself, when is it that Joseph forgives his brothers? You read the passage with me. When does it happen? And the answer is, it's right at the beginning. You look at those first two verses. It says Joseph could not control himself. He's just heard Judah very humbly acknowledge guilt and responsibility for the thieving of the silver cup that Benjamin took. And he's a broken man. It says he could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is where you see this change happening. And notice, friends, notice that the change takes place from the inside out. That it's something that begins and originates inside his heart long before it results in the reconciliation that takes place between him and his brothers. And notice also how deeply emotional this experience is. The reason why I draw your attention to that is because I don't think, I think sometimes we we can think of forgiveness as a decision you have to take. And I recognize that there is a decisional element to forgiveness. You can grit your teeth and choose to forgive. But for Joseph, it's more than that. His whole heart is melting in this moment. In this outpouring of extraordinary emotion. What's going on? Why is he weeping so uncontrollably like this? And I think 
The answer is that it's, it's a complex and multifaceted thing that's happening in him in this moment. Forgiveness always is. There are times when you weep in life when it's just simple and straightforward. If you, if you weep in grief at the loss of a, loss, a, loss of a loved one, that is just short, sheer sadness, bitterness of heart. If you weep on the day that you're getting married, we hope it's happiness and joy, the overflowing of joy. If you weep at the birth of your first child, my wife often points out that I wept on neither occasion. I'm not a weepy sort of person. I try to tell her this. But anyway, some people do. Some people do. They weep easily. You think if you weep on these occasions, it's, it's pure joy. But what's happening here on this occasion is something much more complex going on in Joseph's heart. It's the kind of the tapestry, the weaving together of, of pain and bitterness mixed with joy. And we can look at it from both angles. You think about the negative element that's happening here. For Joseph, this outpouring of emotion as he's weeping is, first of all, the expression of pain and trauma and anger, and all the wrong that's happened to him in his life. And I underline that because, friends, I'm not sure that forgiveness is possible without confronting the reality of those emotions. I'm certainly not the kind of person who's a great advocate for digging around in your heart and gazing at your navel for the rest of your life. But I do believe that real forgiveness very often has to involve a true and honest confrontation with the pain that's happened to you. When I was a boy, I'd use an analogy here for you. If you have a strong gag reflex, then please close your ears at this point. When I was a boy, probably about eight or ten years of age, um, I had a, a huge boil that developed on the back of one of my legs, just in the knee joint. So painful was this boil that I couldn't even straighten my leg without agony. I remember running around on the sports pitch at school, and actually, sorry, limping around because I couldn't participate. And it went on for about two or three days until my parents took it upon themselves to deal with this as parents should. They pinned me down, face down. My dad was a a diabetic, and so he had a stash of sterile needles. And he lanced that boil and then applied pressure so that unbelievable amounts of blood and pus, pus came out of this thing. With me screaming the entire time, but the result was something good. It healed up in no time at all after that. And I think there's a sense in which when Joseph reaches this point, it's ugly. He's wailing so loudly. There's tears flowing from his his eyes. His Egyptian makeup is running everywhere. He's a mess. He's confronting the negative part of his emotion. And that's good. That's the work of God. That's the healing that's coming to his heart. And it's absolutely vital. But with that is something sweet. These tears aren't just tears of anger and hurt and trauma. They're not. It's impossible because look what happens, the reconciliation that takes place with him and his brothers. These tears are also tears of joy and relief, I think. You see, when when you're going through life with hurts that have happened to you, things that have been done to you, stuff that you're carrying, that 
those things weigh on you like a burden, don't they? They drag you down. They create resistance. We have a, an expression in England where we, you can describe someone as being bagged up. And it, it really it captures something that you see in certain people. You see someone who's, who's had bad stuff happen to them and who, whose whole demeanor is that they are bagged up. They're socially maladjusted or they, they're glum or they're, they're awkward or there's something about them. They're, there's a sort of insecurity or a sensitivity or a defensiveness. And you say, that person's bagged up. You might not know what it is that caused it to them, but they're bagged up. We go through life, we carry this baggage with us. And as Joseph begins to, to excise this emotion through weeping in this moment of extraordinary forgiveness, it's not just that the pain is being released. It's also that he's experiencing real joy and relief because the baggage is, is falling off of him. Christ, in one of his parables where he talks about the importance of forgiveness, he uses a striking term to describe people who won't forgive. He says that they'll be handed over to the torturers. And I think he's describing the life in which you hold grudges. It's not that the person that you're holding a grudge against is suffering or even knows. It's that you are subjected to torture from there on for the rest of your life. It's you. You're the one who's in pain. You're the one who's suffering. You're the one who's carrying this baggage. And in this instant, relief floods his heart. He feels happy. Perhaps the first time he's felt real happiness and joy in a long time. It's like opening the curtains in a room that's cold and damp and dusty and letting the light and the warmth of the sun flood in. Something like that's happening in Joseph's heart right at this moment. And I tell you this, friends. This forgiveness has to take place in your heart First and foremost, that's how it happens, and it has to be a work of the living God, of the Holy Spirit. Then I'll tell you this, that this forgiveness not only takes place in your heart, but it also has to take place in the relationship. In the form of reconciliation, it ought to, if at all possible, be worked out in the mending and the healing of a relationship. Now, why is reconciliation so difficult? On the surface of things, it oughtn't to be. The mechanics of reconciliation are simple it is simply having a conversation with another person something that all of you have done already multiple times today the mechanics of it are not difficult and yet you and I know it's one of the most difficult things especially if you're British it's one of the most difficult things you can ever do is to engage in some kind of confrontation that is with the anticipation of leading to a reconciliation it's a weird thing isn't it how When something comes between you and another person, there is instantly an invisible barrier that goes up between you. It's not external to you. It's not a real physical or literal barrier. It is a barrier in your mind and perhaps in their mind also, a barrier in both of your minds that creates this distancing. It's like holding two magnets with the same polarity and trying to push them together. And for for one reason or another, you just cannot do it. There's a resistance. There's a forcing apart that takes place. You think about you and there are individuals in your life for whom you know that's exactly what it feels like. Even to go near to them, you start to feel this this force field. 
You can't look at them or you can't be in their presence. You can't laugh at their jokes and you can't just act like everything's normal. There's a, there's a, there's a pressure. It's a terrible thing when this happens in, in the home, in your married life. You have to somehow exist around each other without, without being able to get too close to one another emotionally or physically or in some other way. Some people go on for years like that. It's a tragedy. There's this barrier that goes up. It's like trying to mix oil and water. The two things won't go together. And you and this other person, you just cannot, you cannot, you cannot experience connection. This is a powerful thing. Joseph experiences this the second that it dawns on his brothers that he is the brother they sold into slavery. He tells them, I'm Joseph. And verse 3, it then says, But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The very instant that they realize who it is they are standing in front of, the barrier is there. They can't look at him. They want to leave the room immediately. They want to hang their heads in shame. And Joseph can feel this from them without question. So obvious, isn't it, when there's an issue between you and someone else. What Joseph does then is fascinating in order to bring about this reconciliation. Because I would say to you that I think he demonstrates immense skill and real courage to bring about a healing of this breach. How does he do it? The first thing he does is he... He makes communication possible again. Very often I think this is the hardest step. That first step. It's the awkwardness of discomfort of a a conflict that leads to the avoidance of the other person and the procrastination. You're putting it off. You think, well, one day maybe I'll, I'll mend things. And eventually just you bury it all together and the relationship is never fixed. How tempting it might have been in that moment for Joseph to simply have done that. But all it takes is words. He says to them, come near to me, please. In other words, he's not willing to let the conflict of their broken relationship create this invisible barrier between him and them. He immediately crosses that barrier. It's as though... If you imagine his heart like a castle, it's like he drops the drawbridge, he pulls up the portcullis, he raises the white flag, and he makes it possible for a relationship to begin to take place in that first step. He makes communication possible. You ask, whose responsibility is it in this situation? Is it the guilty party or is it the innocent party when a conflict takes place? Who's responsible for making that mend begin? In the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus is, yes. Either of you, it doesn't matter. Whoever feels the prompting of the Spirit, whoever becomes conscious that there's a breach, it's your responsibility. You may be the one who did wrong, you're the one who received wrong. Whichever one you are, it's your responsibility. Joseph does it. It's not really his job in that moment, is it? In one sense, they're the ones who wronged him. He says, come near to me, please. There may be someone in your life and you need to say that to them. Perhaps not those exact words, but something like that. 
Sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it, in one sense. Come near to me, please. (laughs) They may have thought they were going to get a beating at this point. But anyway, I don't think that's what's going on. Then he addresses the wrong honestly and directly. He says, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. If that invisible barrier between them was going to prevent any contact, Joseph immediately takes a sledgehammer and smashes it by addressing the issue as he saw it, telling the truth. Reconciliation is impossible without the willingness to tell the truth. When two people who have experienced a breach of relationship don't confront the reality of what's happened, they just pretend, they play act, they patch over the issues What happens from then on is that the relationship is doomed to superficiality and meaninglessness. It can never be what it was. Honest confrontation. You know, we had this expression of talking, of naming the elephant in the room. I love that phrase. Imagine if there actually was an elephant in the room. And you're trying to ignore the thing while the thing is stomping on everything and pooing all over the place and stinking the place out and everyone's pretending like it's not there. We say, look, we've got to name the obvious thing here. You know what it's like when you've, you've experienced a conflict with another person. You try to be polite and smile and pretend like everything's fine. It's like you're ignoring this great hefting, hefting element, elephant that's smashing all over your relationship. Joseph doesn't do that. He says, I'm your brother, the one you sold, you sold into Egypt. Just names the truth. But with that, he immediately brings in grace. He says, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It's human nature, isn't it, to to not want to do this. To not want to release them from the guilt of what they've done. To rather watch them squirm and suffer and express true remorse. That's what we want. We want to see the other person really own up to it. It's like when I say I'm sorry to my wife and she says, but what are you sorry for? (laughs) She really wants to know. (laughs) But Joseph understands The vital thing here, the thing that you have to understand about his brothers, which is that it wasn't just the case that Joseph carried pain. It's also the case that they carried pain. For all those 22, 23 years that they had lived with the reality of the the thing that they had done to him, they were tortured by it. It was excruciating. There was an instant incident some time before when they had been in Joseph's presence when they had come to buy grain they didn't know it was him and they're talking and Joseph has said I'm going to hold one of you in prison and they begin to say the reason this bad thing is happening to us is because of what we did when we sold our younger brother into slavery all those years earlier in other words they think this is some kind of cosmic karma we're suffering because of the evil that we've done not knowing Because they're speaking Hebrew and Joseph spoke to them through an interpreter, not knowing that he stood there watching them and listening to them, understanding every word that they're saying. From then on, Joseph knew that they were carrying a burden just as he was experiencing pain on account of the wrong. The great breach that had taken place when they, they sold him into slavery, they carried as a wound in their own souls. And so here's what's extraordinary. 
When this man stands before them, says, come near to me, you sold me into slavery. But then he immediately says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He is liberating them from their pain. It's like approaching a trapped animal in a forest. It's being caught in a, in a trap. That thing might be vicious, angry, defensive. But the loving and kind thing to do is to release them from the trap. In a sense, that's exactly what Joseph does for his brothers on this moment. By offering them grace, he sets them free from the torment of this years of afflicted conscience and pain that they had been enduring. That's the gospel, friends. That's what Christ has done for you. That's what it means to be a minister of reconciliation, as Paul puts it in one of his letters. To free people from the wrongs that they've done. Forgiveness takes place in your heart. It takes place in the relationship. One final thing I want to add, friends. It also takes place underneath the shadow of the cross. And we know that the gospel has a unique power to enable us to forgive others when we've been wronged. You think about how the gospel is superior to vengeance. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But then he instructs us to love our enemies and to do good to even those who persecute us. Because he knows that vengeance offers you just momentary relief, but you still live with the bitterness for the rest of your life, and it creates cycles of ongoing hurt. The gospel is better than vengeance. The gospel is better than judgment. When you stand in judgment over another, you might not enact any form of vengeance, but you still hold a judgment in your heart against them. And that will put you in a place where you feel superior to them because they wronged you. But of course, by the same token, we have to acknowledge that God could judge us for so much worse because he sees right into the depths of our hearts. The gospel is better than judgment, friends. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees and the the religious elite, he says, he who is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. You really want to stand in judgment over someone else? You sure about that? Have you really thought this through? Don't you know that God could write a list about you? The gospel's better than karma as well. I find it amazing how many people who are non-religious in our day and age who basically believe that karma is true and real. They believe that the universe has some kind of cosmic scales that sets everything into balance. They say what goes around comes around. And it's it's a kind of consolation, isn't it? That person's done something bad, but you just watch. It'll come back to bite them. And we take refuge in that. Even if we can't take vengeance, we take refuge. What goes around comes around. But listen, if you really believe that doctrine, you should be terrified, friend. (laughs) I know the wickedness of my own heart. I don't want what's gone around to come around. I really don't. And the gospel smashes through all of this stuff that that we use to deal with wrongs that have happened to us. And it tells us, first of all, that the debt that you had before God was greater than any debt that anyone's had against you. And God cleared your debt, so why can't you clear these petty small debts? You can. That's grace. When God cleared your debt, he filled your account He gave you lavish enough resources to clear the accounts of those who've wronged you. Because their wrong against you is infinitesimally smaller than the wrongs that you've committed against God. That's the logic of the gospel. And that is what leads you to liberty and freedom in the Christian life. But there's another way in which I think this uh, this story kind of preaches the gospel to us. Why I describe this as being under the shadow of the cross. 
And this is how I see it. One of the reasons why Joseph can forgive his brothers is because he, he sees this. He says that God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he says it again in verse 7. He says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. In other words, you thought you were doing something evil when you sent me into slavery in Egypt. God was actually putting me there so that I could ultimately save you, the Hebrews, from starvation. He says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. In other words, Joseph had come to see something profound and central to the nature and the reality of God and of his plans and his workings in the world, which is this. That the living God has a way of turning even the worst things for good. And that, to me, is the shadow of the cross looming over this particular story. Because at the cross, we see exactly the same dynamic, that the worst the most heinous thing that humankind has ever done in the killing of the Son of God. And it was not just the actions of a few people on that one day in Jerusalem. It was the actions of all of humanity since it was our sin that put him there. The worst thing that we could do in the killing of the Son of God is the very thing through which God has brought freedom and life and salvation. It's the paradox at the heart of God's saving plan and grace. It's captured in the way that Peter preaches to the Jerusalem Jews on the day of Pentecost when he says to them, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he says at the one and the same time, you did it. This was something evil that you committed, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God intended it for good. This has an extraordinary power in the mind of the Christian to bring freedom to those things in which you feel you cannot yet forgive. Because you can know this, friend, that whatever wrong was committed against you, God in his grace has the power and the promise to work that together for good, as Romans 8 puts it. He works all things together for good for those who love him and accord according to his purposes. Even the worst things that were done against you, God has a redemptive way of turning that for good in your life. And the cross is the guarantee and promise that this is how God is redeeming all things. Even the worst things that are happening, God can turn into good. That frees you from resentment. It frees you from anger, from frustration. Carrying the burden of this wrong that was done against you, letting it go. And it brings you into the liberty of trusting the good God that you serve. I want to ask you as I close do you need to forgive? I suspect that even in the asking of the question, A face or a name comes to mind. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who has extended grace and mercy to you, wants you to become more like him. 
I want us to bow our heads and pray. We see the beautiful fruit of reconciliation when it tells us at the end of our passage that he kissed all his brothers. I know how unlikely that is because I have two brothers. I don't tend to kiss them very often. He wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. In a moment, we're going to take the bread and the wine. When you eat the bread and drink the wine, you are reminding yourself of what Christ accomplished so that you could kiss him and he could kiss you. So that you could talk freely with him and know that your sin was no longer a boundary or barrier. That's why we eat the bread. That's why we drink the wine. So that we can know we have perfect intimacy with Christ. He's died for your sin. It's no longer a barrier. And by that same token, I want to encourage you as you eat the bread and drink the wine to ask yourself, do I need to forgive anyone? The most important step is that step that will take place in your heart even in that moment. God will challenge you and stir you to see if there's any way you can bring about reconciliation. And that may well be an important next step. But the most important step is the forgiveness. Are you ready for that? Let's pray. Father, we stand before you, saints forgiven of all our wickedness and sin. And we pray for the same grace that has flowed into our lives as we've encountered healing and coming to know you. To be ours in abundance, to release others of the wrongs they've done against us. In Jesus' name, amen.